Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Hey there. Today's entire episode of Bench Talk is in honor of two great scientists that Louisville has lost as of late last year. Between the pandemic and the economic collapse this spring, I just never quite had the opportunity to tell you about them until now. First, there's Barbara Ellen Conkin. She's noted author, geologist, and college teacher. And then there's Dr. A. Bennett Jensen, a co-developer of the first vaccine for human papillomavirus. That's the leading cause of cervical cancer. Barbara Ellen Conkin passed away at the age of 91 on November 18, 2019. She was born Barbara Ellen Moyer in 1928 in Illinois. First, she attended Smith College in Massachusetts and then went to graduate school at the University of Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas. That's where she earned a Master's of Science degree in geology. She was married for some 66 years to geologist Jim Conkin, who apparently established the geology department at the University of Louisville and passed away in 2017, and she eventually gave birth to four children. Barbara Conkin moved to Louisville at the age of 29 and 12 years later became the first geologist to teach at Jefferson Community College. She taught geology at JCC for the next 26 years. But there's another way that Professor Conkin brought geology to Louisville besides her teaching. It was her writing. I particularly know of her two popular books describing the geology and paleontology of the Louisville area. When I looked through my bookcase for these two books, I easily found them because they were at the top of the stack, meaning that I still refer to them quite a bit. First, there's her book called The Ancient Animals Locked in Louisville's Rocks, A Guide for Fossil Hunters. That was published with her husband and Larry Steinrock back in 1995. This is a great guide to the fossils of Louisville because it's not only exhaustive, but contains really well done, but amusing drawings. After seeing Barbara Conkin's photo as a young woman in the newspaper, I now realize that the drawings of a young woman geologist that were put into her book, it's her. That's her. So if you've got your copy of Ancient Animals Locked in Louisville's Rocks handy, check it out and look for those drawings. They're pretty fun. Then there's her 2005 book called Why Are the Highlands High? And this book describes in detail the kind of rocks found in seven different landscapes that she identifies around Louisville. These seven landscapes include things like the limestone highlands, 
the New Albany Shale Lowland, the Valley of Floyd's Fork, the Southwest Hills and Knobs, and the Ohio River Floodplain. And if you're interested, you can still find these two books in local libraries and for sale in area bookstores and museums, particularly at the Falls of Ohio Museum, for instance. And by the way, the Falls of Ohio Museum is open for business now. Professor Barbara Konkin also co-authored several professional geology books and technical papers with her husband, Jim Konkin. That include a college textbook titled Stratigraphy, and then there is the Guide to the Rocks and Fossils of Jefferson County, Kentucky, and Southern Indiana. And then there's the Handbook to Strata and Fossils at the Falls of the Ohio. She also wrote some children's books, plus a memoir called Far Away to Van Diemen's Land, and that was about her time living in Tasmania. In 1973, the Konkins postulated the concept of peneplain, that's also called paracontinuity, and that's basically when a rock face of apparently continuous strata is interrupted by a thin layer of heavier detritus. Another scientific legacy of the Konkin family is the donation of their very extensive fossil collections to the foraminifera.eu project. Professor of Geology, Researcher, Science Communicator, and Author, Professor Barbara Ellen Konkin. May she rest in peace. And like geology itself that she so thoroughly studied, Barbara Konkin's contribution to science and to Louisville will always be with us. We also lost Dr. A. Bennett Jensen late last year. He passed away on December 23, 2019, at the age of 80. Dr. Jensen was one of three people credited with developing the first vaccine for the human papillomavirus, the leading cause of cervical cancer. A. Bennett Jensen was born in Texas. He got a bachelor's degree in chemistry at Texas Christian University, then a master's degree in experimental pathology at Baylor University, and then a medical degree at Baylor as well. He worked as a pathologist for the U.S. Army Medical Corps during the Vietnam War, and then worked in pathology at Scripps Research Institute, the National Institutes of Health, Georgetown University, and then finally at the University of Louisville. He came to Louisville in 2002 at the age of 63, where he was able to pursue his real passion researching viruses and vaccines at the UofL James Graham Brown Cancer Center. Apparently, Dr. A. Bennett Jensen got interested in the human papillomavirus while he was at Georgetown. Having three daughters of his own, he realized the threat that cervical cancer has for women. He's been quoted as saying, They wanted me to focus on an area that would be helpful to women, and women bear the brunt of diseases to the reproductive system. This is one thing I wanted them to be protected from, unquote. The human papillomavirus, HPV, it's a widely dispersed sexually transmitted disease that's typically fought off by the body's natural immune system, but it does persist in about 10% of women for something like 15, 20 years and can eventually lead to cancer of the cervix. Now, cervical cancer is the fourth most frequent type of cancer in women worldwide, 
There's an estimated 570,000 new cases of cervical cancer per year, causing some 300,000 deaths internationally every year. And more than 85% of the deaths due to cervical cancer occurs in less developed regions, lower-income regions of the world. One of the interesting things about Dr. Jensen's work is that he spent a long time studying papillomaviruses that infect other species of animals, not human. The idea there is to use non-human animals in your research, and they are representing biological models for our biology. So researchers can study the disease in ways that they can't do with people. For instance, you can keep the animal in the lab and monitor the progress of the disease. You can't tie up a person in the lab like that. You can study the effect of different environmental factors like temperature and light and diet on the progression of the disease. And assuming the researchers are following federal guidelines for handling research animals humanely, They can examine individual organs and tissues to see if there are any molecular or physiological changes that are occurring in these model species. You can even isolate cells of the animals to monitor the disease and even look how the disease might get passed on to the next generation, like through genetics. Can't do any of that with humans. Plus, you can try to treat the disease in the model organisms when you wouldn't want to try something experimental like that with living people. So, in the long run, Dr. Jensen's project studied papillomavirus as it occurred in dogs, horses, cattle, snow leopards, dolphins, and manatees. Because of this work, Dr. Bennett Jensen was often contacted by veterinarians who had questions about this disease in animals. In the case of manatees, for instance, there was a strange abnormality discovered in seven manatees that were being raised in a wildlife park in Florida back in 1997. These seven manatees developed wart-like growths on their skin. And manatees typically have a very strong immune system. They rarely develop infectious diseases, but Jensen, collaborating with a group of other biologists, came to realize that these little tumors, these wart-like growth, were due to a papillomavirus, but that the disease was only presenting itself in manatees that were living in captivity. The theory is that the virus might be harbored in manatees that are living out in the open ocean in the wild, but that it just doesn't get expressed in that situation. But it might be the stress of living in captivity that's behind the emergence of these symptoms. And it turns out that's how HPV works in humans. Apparently, it really emerges when the immune system is compromised. Now, one of the reasons that cervical cancer rates are relatively lower in wealthier countries like in the United States is because there are vaccines available here to protect the body from HPV. And Jensen and his group first received a patent for HPV vaccine back in 1992. But pharmaceutical companies at that time weren't particularly interested because of the availability of pap smears. I guess they figured that since pap smears detect cervical cancer, the patient already had plenty of treatment options like surgery, radiation therapy, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, things like that. So it really wasn't until 2006, following a patent dispute, and then they finally received FDA approval, 
the Merck Pharmaceutical Company finally began marketing the HPV vaccine that was developed by Jensen and his wife, researcher Shenji Jim, and Richard Schlegel. This vaccine is still on the market. You might have even seen commercials on TV or in magazines. It's called Gardasil, and it targets two different cancer-causing viral strains of HPV. These are the ones that are responsible for something like three-quarters of all cervical cancer cases. And Gardasil also protects against genital warts and vaginal cancer and anal cancer. So Dr. Jensen and his two colleagues, one of them was his wife, they're responsible for the second biggest selling vaccine on the market right now. In 2015, Gardasil brought in $1.9 billion in sales. That tells you that vaccines are expensive. So as a response to that, Jensen and his wife were most recently searching for an alternative and cheaper way of manufacturing the HPV vaccine. They wanted to use tobacco plants. What they were doing is placing the gene for the vaccine into tobacco plants. You grow the plants up, you harvest the leaves, and extract that vaccine protein from the tobacco leaves. I think this is a good example of how doing genetic engineering of plants can be a good thing. So whereas the three doses of the Gardasil vaccine that are normally required for full immunity, that costs something like $360 for those three doses if you buy them from Merck, the same three doses extracted from tobacco leaves, how much would it cost? Only $3, a dollar a dose. They had a collaborator in India where people are being ravaged by HPV, something like 120,000 new cases of cervical cancer every year in India, and people just can't afford that vaccine there. Jensen was quoted as saying, it's an alternative use of tobacco plants. Instead of using them to make nicotine cigarettes that cause cancer, paradoxically, You can use it for making a vaccine that protects women against cervical cancer. Dr. A. Bennett Jensen, virus hunter, physician, pathologist, researcher, teacher, and humanitarian. May he rest in peace. Millions of people throughout the world are living longer and living healthier because of his endeavors. Next, we're going to hear from Bench Talk team member J. Scott Miller about the environmental impacts of the 2020 coronavirus pandemic. Scott here. In the June 9th edition of Physics Today, I found an interesting headline. Carbon emissions responded rapidly to coronavirus measures. The summary read, Drastic reductions in transportation and economic activity in response to the COVID-19 outbreak caused a global drop of 17% in daily carbon dioxide emissions. Further readings showed that there was nearly a 17% reduction in carbon dioxide emissions compared to 2019. The article pointed out that carbon dioxide emissions had plateaued in 2019 due to things like declining use of coal for power generation and milder weather, which, as one can imagine, would reduce the need for power, especially during winter months, for heating, 
as well as air conditioning in summer months. In fact, the carbon dioxide emissions had decreased to levels similar to those measured in 2006. The authors of the study credit the reduction to the restrictions imposed by countries around the world due to the novel coronavirus, which resulted in a substantial contraction of the economies of those countries. The authors also indicate that the length of time for this decrease will be tied to how much longer countries decide to keep social distancing and shelter-in-place guidelines in effect. If most countries resume business as usual by mid-June, emissions could decrease 4.2% overall for the year, 5.3% if economic activity resumes in late July, and 7.5% if some restrictions continue for the remainder of 2020. The article also points out that the reduction on the order of 4.2 to 7.5% in carbon dioxide emissions are comparable to the type of decreases necessary to meet the Paris Agreement's goals. This goal has been projected to limit the global temperature increase to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. At about the same time, I also received the monthly NASA Global Climate Change News Edition, where an article dated for May 18th states, the Ozone Monitoring Instrument, or OMI, on board NASA's ARA satellite provided data that indicate that these restrictions have led to about a 31% decrease in nitrogen dioxide levels in the Los Angeles Basin relative to previous years. Nitrogen dioxide is an air pollutant measured by the OMI. The estimated reductions for other cities in the southwest U.S. before and after the quarantine restrictions are 22% for the San Francisco Bay Area, 25% for San Diego and Tijuana, Mexico, 16% for Phoenix, and 10% for Las Vegas. According to the Environmental Protection Agency's website, breathing air with high concentrations of nitrogen dioxide can irritate airways in the human respiratory system. Such exposures over short periods can aggravate respiratory diseases, particularly asthma, leading to respiratory symptoms such as coughing, wheezing, or difficulty breathing, hospital admissions, and visits to emergency rooms. Longer exposures to elevated concentrations of nitrogen dioxide may contribute to the development of asthma and potentially increase susceptibility to respiratory infections. People with asthma, as well as children and the elderly, are generally at greater risk for the health effects of nitrogen dioxide. Nitrogen dioxide, along with other nitrogen oxides, react with other chemicals in the air to form both particulate matter and ozone. Both of these are also harmful when inhaled due to the effects on their respiratory system. From an environmental side, the same site states nitrogen dioxide and other nitrogen oxides interact with water, oxygen, and other chemicals in the atmosphere to form acid rain. Acid rain harms sensitive ecosystems such as lakes and forests. Nitrogen oxides in the atmosphere contribute to nutrient pollution in coastal waters. Collectively, all this news on the reduction of pollutants might sound positive for those of us concerned about climate change and its effect on this planet. But, in the same NASA news article, one also sees that overall carbon dioxide levels are still much higher than at any time in historical records. And the point of the Physics Today article was that there is likely a return to this growth in carbon dioxide levels as economies around the world begin to open up. Return to normal would also result in an increase in nitrogen dioxide and other nitrogen oxides, muting the short recess. 
Isn't it sad that it takes a global pandemic for us to start to do what is necessary to move the needle away from the dire consequences of further temperature rises? Isn't it sad that we, or the leaders we elect, lack the will to do what is right because of the almighty dollar? In this election year, isn't it time that we take the reins and remove those in office who think jobs money are much more important than keeping this planet habitable for all life forms, including us humans? And just as important, elect those that think that keeping the planet habitable for all life forms is the long view, is the way we need to move into the future. Thanks, Scott. Next is our newest Bench Talk team member, John Dixon. You might have caught John's story on our June 15th show about citizen science, and this week he's got an essay on inquiry-based learning. Hi, John Dixon again, science educator and KAS member, here to talk to you about inquiry-based learning. We live in a time where information is always available, but I would like to suggest the path that a scientist would take as a tool for every person to use, ask a question, and keep an open mind. One of my first memorable interactions in science education was with a family, a mother and her two daughters participating in a creative project where they could share what they learned or hoped to learn that day. The theme was flowers and gardening, so the older daughter made a beautiful flower creation, with a coffee filter as the petals folded and colored with care, attached to a pipe cleaner for a stem, and placed in a paper cup with brown tissue paper for the pot. She wanted to tell me what type of flower it was, why it was her favorite, and the first time she saw one. All great observations. Her younger sister, around four, had taken a plastic bottle, cut off the top two inches with assistance, placed a coffee filter around the top, and inserted a straw. She shared with me very proudly that she made a flower pot as well, so I asked her what she would grow in that pot, and she said she would grow happiness. She elaborated that mom could put dirt in the top, pour water on it, drink the dirty water with the straw, and then be happy. That was a perfectly reasonable path of logic. She had observed the experiment many times at home, and every day, Mom would fill the happy pot with dirt, drink the dirty water, and be happy. Science isn't a monolith that only trained professionals are allowed to interact with. Each and every one of us is a scientist in some way. We search to have a better understanding of our world throughout our whole lives. My biggest personal takeaway from this encounter is that I knew her conclusion was wrong, but her observations supported the conclusion she made. If her life experiences had included learning about coffee grounds or what caffeine was and how it affected the brain, her conclusions would have been different, though she can't reasonably be faulted for not knowing these things with only the life experiences she'd had until that moment. In that same vein, when given the opportunity, I now like to play a game with anyone of all ages willing to suspend disbelief. I call the game, I'm an alien, and the point is for them to describe to me, portraying an alien, an object. Today we'll say a starfish. The explanation usually begins, this is a starfish. And most people act like their job is finished. I ask, what's a star? I get a response about what a star literally is at times, and it always gets to become a good description of the shape. I then ask what a fish is, and learn that they are marine life, as well as other details. 
In my persona as an alien, I'll recount that I now know that this is a thing before me that was once alive in the ocean. Its shape is so unique and important to earthlings that the creature was named for it. We can't blame an alien for not knowing what a starfish is any more than we can blame someone of any age who had never been taught what a starfish is. Hopefully, though, we will all be scientists and teachers in those moments. We can find the knowledge that we share in our life experiences and research together and find a conclusion. If you ever encounter something that you don't know or understand, I encourage you to look it up. Libraries, the internet, and your peers will always assist in helping us understand our natural world. But first, you will have to ask a question. Thank you. Thanks, John, and welcome to the Bench Talk team. And finally, bees. What can gardeners do to encourage bee populations in their neighborhood? Well, Bench Talk team member and published author Leslie Moise has some thoughts on that. And as a plus, she ends her story with a poem she specifically wrote for this episode. The American honeybee provides a keystone of the food chain. Not only do bees pollinate plants humans eat, they also feed animals who provide meat and milk for us. According to research by the University of Maryland, there were 40% fewer honeybees in 2019 than in 2018. There are communities where people work together to give bees an extended habitat. Instead of random individuals planting flowers in our yards without connecting to what grows in neighbors' yards, Whole communities intentionally plant herbs and flowers to feed the bees. Entire neighborhoods offer vast habitats to provide for a large population of these essential pollinators. Planting a few herbs like lavender, lemon balm, basil, bee balm, borage or thyme, and flowers like butterfly bush or hydrangeas, hibiscus, coneflower, and black-eyed Susans offers nectar for bees and other pollinators like hummingbirds and butterflies. Note, spraying chemicals on the plants negates the purpose of planting. So, if we all talk to our neighbors and coordinate what we plant, we not only brighten our yard and neighborhood with blooms, we sweeten the air with scent and the hum of bees, and we attract aerial blossoms like hummingbirds and butterflies. If we all plant a half dozen herbs and flowers in coordination with our neighbors, we make our neighborhoods lovelier and we contribute to life on our planet. Bees. Survival rests on gold-striped backs. Nectar harvest leaves pollen dusted over fuzz, shaken onto plants' mate. Maybe the beans in your garden or hay for the cow who provides next month's milk, next summer's burger on the grill. Life supported by fragile wings. Not just their lives. Ours. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for 
Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.